Welcome to the Where There's a Will, There's a Way podcast with Coulter Legal, where we share our insights and bust some myths on wills, estate planning and deceased estates. I begin today by acknowledging the Wadawurrung people, traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording this podcast today. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Where There's a Will, There's a Way podcast. Uh, you're back with Stefan Manch and today I've got my colleague uh, Tristan Burke. Tristan, welcome. How are you going? Good, thanks Stefan. Thanks for having me. No worries. Great to have you uh, along for the podcast today. And now Tristan, he's a lawyer in our Wills Estates and Succession Planning team. Uh, you just ticked over two years practice. Um, and uh, Goes you quick. T- <laughs> yeah, you can tell the listeners, but enjoying your time in the Wills and Estates space? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, every day is very different. Um, always something interesting going on. It sure is. Uh, now today, uh, Tristan, we've got you here to talk about assets uh, and specifically, which assets are included in your estate um, and therefore which assets we can control via a person's will. Um, this is extremely important for estate planning uh, and we can um, we can limit control. Uh, we can in, impose plenty of strategies around that. So in our everyday practice, Tristan, as you well know, how an asset's owned or registered is absolutely paramount in estate planning. It's one of the most important questions we ask when speaking with willmakers. Um, can you explain why? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll just a little bit of background. When when um, the British came over and um, came to Australia, they brought with them the law uh, in, in the UK. So part of that is kind of property law and, and how you can own property. Um, so that's fundamentally, you know, the basis of, I guess, estate planning is, mm-hmm. is directing assets, ownership. Um, so there's kind of two broad ways of ownership um, in in Australia. One's owning things jointly um, and one's owning things individually. Um, And you can also kind of have control of assets through trust structures and companies. And and so with those those ownership structures, um, in Australia, a will can only control or direct assets which are owned in a willmaker's sole name. Uh, and so for a lot of people, you know, you just think, well, I own everything I own, right? Isn't that doesn't it cover everything? Um, but that's not quite the case. Uh, and so the way an asset is registered is is really central um, to to what we can control in the will. And it's not based on contributions. Um, so, you know, in the way that most people think, well, I've, you know, I've my spouse and I have purchased this property. Yes, it's in her name, but, well, you know, we're paying half each or we've contributed half each. Don't, doesn't my will cover half? That That's also not the case. It's quite different to the way it's dealt with in a, a separation, you know, at the end of a relationship. Um, now, that often comes as a real surprise to our clients. Um, how do we did, to talk about assets that are held jointly with somebody? Um, how does that work? Yeah, so one of the you know, most commonly held joint asset is, is someone's house. Um, you know, I, I, you'd see this as well, nine times out of 10, um, you know, partners own their, their principal place of residence. Um, 
jointly. Um, it's just seems to be the default. And um, basically what that means is they don't have a separate interest in that ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, if one passed away, the property would kind of automatically pass to the surviving um, owner. Um, and as you said, it has nothing to do with percentages contributed or um, any, anything like that. It's just the entire property would, would vest which is the boring legal word, but it would go <laughs> it would go to the the surviving um, holder, um, and which is different to family law. If you have a separation, you look at contributions and things like that. But um, yeah, so the the other way of holding property, which is tenants in common, does look at contributions. You can have a distinct percentage or share of ownership in that property. So it might be there's 10 parts of ownership. You own nine parts. I own one part. If the property sold, you know, my entitlement's that one part out of the 10, but not for jointly held properties. Um, same as jointly held bank accounts. Um, basically anything that's not in your sole name. Um, and yeah, if you pass away, we say it automatically goes to the survivor, but there's some paperwork to fill out, but it's, it goes through the law of survivorship. Sure. Of course. So, so- there's um, property ho- holders joint proprietors, and that's so that's essentially that the two joint holders um, hold the entirety of the property together. There's no kind of divisible shares, and so if one passes away, it, it automatically transfers to su- the survivor. And they're the same. There are jointly held bank accounts, shares, investments, and that the same thing applies. But then there's that other type of joint ownership for property, which is tenants in common. And so, as you said, that's where parties have a, a divisible share in the property um, and so we can actually control that divisible share by their will but that's not the normal manner of ownership for you know a husband and wife or, or partners that's more the sort of ownership we tend to see with business partners or with siblings who want to invest in a property together or, or friends um, you know or, or family members owning a, a family holiday home together or something like that that gives us something to work with in, in estate planning. Um, but I think, you know, you're nodding along. Our clients often don't, and it's not their fault, but they don't understand the, the distinction between the, the differences in joint ownership. Um, and that distinction is really, really important from our perspective in estate planning, um, which is why we often undertake title searches as, as part of that process. We confirm the manner of ownership and who's actually on the title. Tells us all sorts of other things too, like whether there's uh, anything else on the title that we need to know about. Um, But when we're completing wills for a couple with those jointly held assets, that our planning has to consider what will happen on the death of one. And so with that joint proprietorship, it's pretty simple that the survivor automatically receives the balance. But then also happens on on the death of the survivor, so the second of them to pass. I'm just going to call out, we're talking about death a lot. It's a bit grim, um, <laughs> but it's really practical. Uh, and and un- unfortunately, it's a bit of a theme for the podcast, but I digress. Um, the, we need to deal with that survivor's interest in the property, which we know will be the entirety of it and, and where it passes from there. So for context, uh, this manner of planning is really, really relevant um, for couples in a blended family. And so we'll use the term blended family a fair bit, but what that generally means is that we're talking about a subsequent relationship. Um, So somebody's partnered up and maybe they've got married, maybe they haven't, but they've had children, they've subsequently separated. 
and then moved on to a further relationship where, again, they might have children of that secondary relationship um, and also their partner might have children from their relationship. So we're looking at different sort of family structures coming together where each of the willmakers is going to want to look after their spouse, um, their current spouse that is, uh, but they're also going to want to look after the children of that relationship um, but they might also have an interest in looking after the children of a, of a previous relationship and that interest is going to be different to their partners who might only have their children to look after or also children from their previous relationship. Um, there's that real desire to protect for your own um, and, and so in the planning um, there's a lot of things that we can put in place to, to deal with that but we need to know that manner of ownership and that ownership does sometimes limit what we can actually do. Um, can you tell us why um, it might be difficult in a blended family situation where there's joint property ownership between the, the you know, current parties of the relationship? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So um, look, an, an example might be where you've got, um, you know, a blended family, um, you've got children from previous relationships and um, the current relationship that one of the main assets or the main asset is a jointly held property, um, if one of the um, spouses pass, like we mentioned before, that property is going to pass entirely to the survivor and once they pass or in their will, there's kind of no guarantees without putting some estate planning tools in place that the death of, you know, the first partner to pass, their kids will be provided for. Um, As everything passes to the survivor, they could, you know, change their will. Um, lots of things could happen and that could lead to a situation where the first children of the first, you know, spouse to pass aren't provided for, um, which is a really scary thought. That, that's right. And, and I think it's scary but importantly we've got plenty of tools to work around that. And so I'll mention it really briefly but a mutual wills agreement is one tool that we can use um, and that's essentially a, a contract and agreement between the two parties, um, the, the spouses, that says, look, in both our wills we're going to provide for both sets of children, uh, you know, my children from the previous relationship, your children from the previous relationship. We don't know who's going to pass away first, so we're going to, wh- whoever dies second, their will has to say split between these kids in however which way we, we agree to. Um, but to ensure that, you know, the survivor... Um, doesn't go off and repartner or change their will to only provide for their children. We've got this agreement in place that says we actually we're not going to go off and do that. This is our joint intentions. Happy for the surviving spouse to use all of the assets in whatever way they want, but at the end of the day, when they pass, you know both our sets of children or you know all three sets of children have to benefit here. And so that's just one of the tools we can use. Um, but we don't know to use it unless we know the manner of the ownership of the property. Um, you know, it could be easier if the property was held as tenants in common or in just one party's name. It gives us a bit more control. But regardless of the scenario, we can plan around it if we need to. And, and it's kind of a core underlying um, ideal for estate planning is that with the information, uh, we can always make a plan that, that you know, best suits what a person's wishes are. Now, I'm going to move on from property. What about the largest asset for a lot of people, funds in superannuation? Uh, is that covered by the will automatically? Uh, it's not. 
Absolutely, it's not. Um, so the way superannuation, you know, in Australia works is is the superannuation um, funds essentially are, you know, they're a big trust, um, and when you have money in your, you know, um, superannuation fund, they they're holding it for you on trust as a beneficiary um, until you're entitled to receive it, you know, either upon retirement or sometimes if you're terminally ill, you know, some other um, other examples. But um, it, it's not property which you can direct through your will without bringing it into your estate through a nomination, which we'll, we'll talk about yeah. a little bit further. Yeah, so, so, so super's there for our future benefit, but it's not an asset like a house or a bank account that we've got ready access to right now exactly right yeah so the super fund i guess they own the, the, the money but they they kind of um own it on your behalf as the ultimate beneficiary um but until you're entitled to receive it through some particular event um it's not property which you can control right that makes sense so so then what can we do to control it on death most if not all well actually yeah all superannuation funds um give you the ability to nominate where your superannuation goes upon your passing um, and, and you do that through a binding death benefit nomination form um, and there's superannuation law um, and taxation law which is is voluminous and um, <laughs> you could make a podcast easily about that on its own but there's certain people who you can direct the super, superannuation to be paid to upon mm-hmm. your death. Um, generally it's spouses, children, um, financial dependence and your um, estate um, without a nomination in place. It's entirely up to the superannuation trustee to decide where it goes and it can take a while and people basically have to plead their case with who should receive it. Right. So, And that's not what you want to leave behind for a loved one of you passing away or your family? Not not given the fact that it takes about 10 minutes to fill out the form yep. um, or 10 weeks to convince the super trustee to pay it to where it should have gone, you know, in the first instance. Sure. So so that nomination is essentially like a very simple will for your super fund. It, it directs where it's to go. It is to go. And so it's either to individuals like a spouse or children or it's to direct it under your actual will um, so that you can distribute it to whoever you want to and in whatever proportions you want to. Um. Are super funds any good at reminding us to do those? <laughs> um, they're not. So I actually recently changed super funds um, and I got this amazing pack of beautiful brochures and, and all this kind of, you know, stuff that I had absolutely no interest in. And what I didn't have was a binding death benefit nomination form to fill out. Um, nowhere in the brochure um, mentioned it and um, it wasn't readily available on the app either. So uh some some might be, um, but no, no, generally um, it's self-initiated. Yep. And, and and that seems to be the experience for a lot of our clients too, which is why we raise it as part of every will estate planning discussion. Um, you know, have you got a binding death benefit nomination in place? And, and we talk about it strategically um, and, and that, that strategy is important because we really can use superannuation as a strategic tool in estate planning as well. You know, we might want to keep it, we not we might not want to direct it under the will, um, particularly if we're anticipating that a claim might be brought against the estate. In Victoria, um, a, a person can only claim against assets in a person's personal name. 
Um, and so supers kind of sits outside of that. Um, and if we can keep it outside of the estate, that minimises that pool that can be claimed against. So in that sort of scenario, we'd say, well, we want to direct it to spouse, children, whoever it might be straight away. So it doesn't fall under the will at all. But there are other scenarios where we definitely want it to fall into the the will. And that might be in the scenario where a person doesn't have a spouse or children. They still want their broader family members or um, a charity or grandchildren, whoever it might be, to benefit from their super. They can't nominate them directly, so they have to direct it under their will. Now, you did mention trusts, um, Tristan. So many of our clients utilise family discretionary trusts um, because they've got a you know, great tax and asset protection benefits. Getting really deep on trusts is a matter for another podcast episode. Um, but just for today, can a will control assets held by a trust? Um, no, it can't. Um, for all the benefits of a trust, it's, um, you know, um, one of the intentions is that the property that's, that's um, you know, held by the trust is separate to you personally. Um, so like we mentioned before, you can only direct um, property through your will that you actually own. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly to the way a, um, you know, superannuation trustee holds the money on trust for you as the beneficiary, same as a family trust. Um, you're a beneficiary, but you don't have ownership of that asset. Um, what you can do, and same thing for a company, the company's its own separate entity. You know, you might be a, a shareholder, um, but, but you know, you don't have an automatic entitlement to the underlying assets. Um, but what you can do is, is pass control of the trust or pass control of company through your will great so so all we can do within the will is is pass on that control so so here's the trust that i am currently benefiting from but i want you know my children or my spouse to benefit from so what we do within the will is pass on that control to to give the ability to continue to benefit but we can't pass the assets so if a trust holds a, a particular property say a commercial property we can't gift that property itself just give control in the trust. Um, and so, again, that brings with it some limitations and, and sometimes we put in place statements of wishes. So if people want to, um, you know, make sure that a property is held onto for a certain period of time or used in a particular way, we can include those wishes. But all the benefits that come from having a trust are that it is discretionary. Um, so we can't actually lock too much in um, without really diving into the, the trust documents, etc. So there are a couple of other things I just want to quickly touch on. Um, what about loans? Uh, do, do they fall within a will and can they be controlled? Um, in, absolutely. So um, money that's owed to you is a form of property. Um, so it is something you can control through the will. Um, it's pretty vital that you, um, if you don't have a loan agreement in place that you can point towards, that you've got some record of the loan being owed and whoever your executors are that you appoint are aware that you're owed that amount of money. It, it would be something you could include in the will, if not just as a reference or when we take your instructions, make note that the, there's a loan owed, but it's really important that your executors are aware of, of any money you're owed. It's that, 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 that's a really important point. That's great. Um, because it is, it's, it's, and it is an executor's uh, obligation to call in any of those loans and, and to maximise your estate to, to collect in those assets. So knowing about the loan and documenting it in a will, that's really important. 
Well, Tristan, I think we've got through about as much as we can today, and and that is a really quick, you know, coverall on on assets and the importance of how they're registered, insofar as how we can control them by a will. But I think it also highlights um, just how much isn't covered uh, and how important a broader state plan is versus just drawing up a will, which you know appoints executors and and makes some gifts. This really talks to the value of the discussion that we have and the, the advice that we give clients because every situation is different um, and we, uh, by knowing the types of the assets and how they're held, we can really make a difference in terms of making what our, uh, our, our client's wishes come true basically via their will. Uh, Tristan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Any closing comments? Well, there's all those way. <laughs> Thanks, Stefan. <laughs> Thanks, Tristan. And look forward to uh, having you with us on our next podcast shortly. Thank you.